So this evening I'd like to offer some reflections on faith so we can tune into that in our, within ourselves so that we can really feel the support of that in our lives. Each of us are here because we already have some degree of faith. We have experienced the basic teachings of the Buddha and there, we know that they're worthy of giving our energy to, of developing, of doing the practice. And when we examine the teachings of the Buddha, there are many ways which he says and others say that the teachings are basically um, categorized in three different areas. To develop goodwill in our thoughts, in our actions, and of course in our own minds to relinquish ill will in those very same areas so that when we see it coming up in our own minds, we can check it, we can let it go. And to develop the mind in calm, in clarity, in concentration, and mindfulness so that it brings forth the wisdom that liberates us from the pain of our lives that comes from our hearts from our experiences within. And so we do the practice with great sincerity a lot of times because we already have this faith. Of course it may vary in intensity and in ways that we're uh, accessing it, but we find out that when we're calm and we're peaceful and things kind of settle down, we do find that quality of faith deep within our own hearts. We find that we can do the right balance in our practice. We can find the right balance for ourselves. This gives us faith. We find that we can bring up loving kindness and compassion in times when we're giving ourselves or others a hard time. And this brings up faith we find that we can see harmful states of mind in ourselves and we can let them go. Not always, but this is what we're doing the practice for. And we find that this is uh, supported by faith. Through the practices of concentration and vipassana that we do, we see that it brings greater clarity and a sense of deeper connection with life. And so this brings faith to us, or we get connected with the faith that's already there. So we already have some heart-based intelligence that this path of, of practice benefits us, and we see that it benefits others. We see the results in our own experience. We see the results in the people around us who are doing the practice. So, of course, it may be shaky sometimes, and we may be on tender hooks, or we may be feeling quite vulnerable and foggy, confused about what's going on in our own minds. But when the fog clears, we know we can trust this path of practice. So this is faith, and we already have it. I mean, if, 
If you've even been here two days, you know, you have to have faith to keep going. So it's said that the characteristic of faith is trusting. When we look at the, uh, in the Abhidhamma, we see that this is one of the characteristics. Actually, the word in Pali is sada, and it means to establish faith more and more. So some years ago, I decided that um, to realize one of the long-held aspirations I had was possible. My children were mostly on their own, not depending on me so much. Um, Even they weren't living in the house and not financially dependent on me. And I carried in in my heart and in my life for a long time, the aspiration to ordain as a nun. And um, I see that I saw at that time that I could do it. So I took a short time of practice, just a period of two months of practice to ordain as a nun in Burma under the guidance of my my preceptor, the Sayadaw Upandita. Somehow I could intuitively trust that faith was pointing my life in a new direction, that uh, it was time to take that direction, that new direction in life. It's said that the aspirations that come out of uh, our faith point one's life in new directions. It gives us the ability and the resolve to venture forth into areas of our own hearts and our own minds that maybe we haven't had the courage to do or the time or the conditions to do previously. Maybe this new direction is uh, a direction that's giving us a, a greater and deeper understanding of life. Maybe it's aligning us with the truth in a deeper way than we have known before. It's said that faith is like a spiritual compass. It starts pointing in another direction at a certain time of our lives. And we know without a doubt that we have to go in that direction. So when I arrived there in Burma, at the uh, forest monastery, the forest uh, retreat center. It's called Semengon. I went to pay respects to the teacher, uh, Seedaoji Upandita, and I went through the formalities, the bowing and the letting him know what I was there for, and um, a few of the, you know, how's, how's it going at home? And I mean, he, he would actually engage in a tiny bit of that. Um, he knew me since I was in my 20s, so he knew when, about the children in my life, etc. So he asked me in a very forthright way, he said, Why are you here? You have come from so far away, you're leaving the comforts of your home, and you've come here to... It, it's a fairly comfortable place of practice compared to other places in Burma, But it's still challenging to be in Burma, to be in practice there, to be under the 
the guidance of, of this particular teacher who is, is known a lot for his, his strictness and um, his putting your feet to the fire, so to say. So he said, why are you here? And I just very also forthrightly say, I'm here to purify my heart. I see many uh, hindrances, defilements, and um, they may not be as strong as they were 20 years before, but still I see that it's really time to uh, take care of that. Do what I can. It, It may not be in the way that I want them to be purified, like fully right now, right here, but doing what I can to lessen them, to maybe even uproot some of them. Who knows? So I said, I've come here to purify my heart and basically of what causes the suffering in my life. Not anything outside. It was all definitely from the inside. So his reply and admonition to me was, you must be able to invest everything you have in your practice. No less than that. You must be able to invest everything you have in your practice. So through the years, I was quite used to the high bar that he always presented to us. So I wasn't really um, surprised or um, discouraged by that answer. In my heart, I was really willing to venture to what was unknown, what was previously unknown. I was willing to venture into areas of existential suffering in my own heart. Um, In times when I could see it, and most times of late in practice, it's, it's not seeing the suffering so personally, but just seeing how it's so universal, how it's existential. So there was that willingness to do that, and I knew it would include that. And I knew it must be true, as he was saying, that I had to invest everything I had in the practice to acknowledge, to be able to acknowledge and recognize the strengths that were already there. Because as I had seen over through the years that there was more times when he asked me to rely on my own inner strength than to uh, borrow his strength, but to find the strength in my own heart to get through what needed to be gotten through, to um, understand more deeply, to find that, that compassion that kind of um, comes out as kind of a sword, you know. It's more like a sword than a, a kitten, <laughs> somebody was saying today, that says, this is it. Ready to let go of this now. So, looking into my own heart and, and being willing to um, find those strengths in my own heart and not to have that kind of false humility that says, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But to say, yes, you know, it's been shown over and over again and, and those qualities are really impersonal in and of themselves. So why go to that place, that false humility? So I knew that I had to 
have trust in what was already there and develop them more and more to really allow them to be invested in the practice, bring them forth, to bring forth what we call bhavana in our practice. So even though I was also aware of the limitations, I mean, this is, this is a wholesome way of seeing things, being aware of limitations of my own heart, I also realized how important it was to not fall in the rabbit hole of getting caught in them getting caught and saying, I'm not good enough, and there's not enough this or that, there's too much of these other things to see clearly. But to simply realize in a very pragmatic way, without any spiritual pride, what inner qualities would support the practice. The qualities like the simple ones, you know, the basic ones that we learned from our grandmothers and grandfathers and, and... elders, the ones like patience and caring for ourselves deeply and others, compassion, that goodwill, that loving kindness, that equanimity, that ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. Letting go that comes from generosity, that comes from renunciation, resolution, really being connected with that, not that grasping at results, but that resolve to stay on the path no matter what happens, that resolve to, f- to find that middle path and to stay on that path as we plod along as it feels like sometimes. And always knowing that when one or several of those qualities wasn't strong, Patience wasn't there or wasn't strong. Equanimity wasn't there. Inability to let go wasn't there. That I could fall back on something else. Maybe noticing the compassion, that deep caring that I had for this path of practice, for those around me that would benefit if I could really let go more deeply. So I could trust that that would happen. That when other qualities were absent, certain qualities would show up and be present, or I'd be able to find them and acknowledge them. It's said that in this path of practice, we learn to establish faith in three ways. In the teachings, in, in the teachers, and in oneself. So, I'd like to start out talking about confidence in oneself because that is the place we encounter the most challenges, where we encounter the most challenges. Confidence in oneself, trust in oneself, faith in oneself. It requires such opening and and being aware in those openings of the many layers and hidden places of our hearts and minds that are so difficult to open to, vulnerable areas, habit patterns of the mind and the heart when the vulnerable areas get open to, places where there's a lot of pain um, that we see that we cause ourselves by not paying attention to that, by letting that kind of unconsciously take over and therefore 
causing pain to others, of course, from that place. It takes a lot of faith to know that we can open to that. It takes a lot of faith in remembering that, oh, we've done it before, maybe in simple ways, and maybe we can do it again, that we can open gently in a balanced way with more and more acceptance to that place. Because we allow awareness to open to that, it's for that very reason that we develop the strength to go on, just to keep going in our practice, to enter into and to navigate that inner terrain that's so difficult, to be in those muddy waters sometimes, or the waters that are really rough, and it kind of tosses us here and there. But somehow we know how to set the sails or take them down, or we know how to navigate with the rudder, or we know by the stars, you know, which way to go. So it's gaining confidence in the stronger ways. It's said that one of the functions of faith is to enter into it's, it's like to enter into places that have been unknown or not so well navigated in the past. The, the description in the ancient text is like setting out across a flood. And usually this flood means a flood of defilements, a flood of hindrances. It says also to overcome the opposition like fear and a feeling of weakness or inadequacy, feelings of resistance to, oh, this is really unpleasant. And so because of resistance, we tend to turn the mind towards something that is more pleasant. We run away from what's hard, and we go into imagining times of the past or planning times of the future where it could be more pleasant all the while not opening. So we learn to open to these places, to overcome the opposition. And through that experience, we gain more confidence, of course. I remember that that time that I I just talked about when I went to Burma to ordain as a nun. That was in 2001. And at that time, I was 54 years old. And the practice schedule, many of you know it because many of you have practiced in Asia and in Burma. It's quite rigorous, waking up very early, 3 in the morning, and um, being in the hall by 3.30 to walk, sitting by 4 o'clock, doing the chanting and doing your sitting, and walking in a line at this particular retreat center, monastery, walking in a line, you know, all in order, um, being very mindful, walking over 1,000 steps, I've counted it many times, from the sitting hall to the eating hall, where you also had to be mindful. And the teacher would come around and really check on you, you know, are you eating mindfully? Do you have enough to eat? Also, really caring for, for you in that way, showing compassion, um, through, through all those ways. It was very hard for me at, 
that time. But I, I really wanted to carry out my resolve. I was thinking, a lot of times I thought, this is a resolve that I did not complete in a former lifetime. So I, I had this great resolve to sort of complete this now. Um, and by the way, after another time of ordaining as a nun, Sedao Ji Upandita said to me, you don't have to ordain anymore. And so, okay, now that resolve feels done. (laughs) So, very strict, very rigorous, and the opposition would come over and over again. And it would come in different forms, you know, of feeling overwhelmed by what was going on there sometimes. It's not quiet like here. Those of you who have been to Burma know that it's really noisy. You know, there's talking outside. The, sometimes they have the windows cleaned, and they have it cleaned when you're sitting, you know, and the workers are talking to each other when you're in the hall, sitting, sometimes smoking a cigarette if no one's checking on them, you know. <laughs> and um, lucky we, we don't know what they're saying, otherwise the mind would really go loopy. But just, you know, just hearing, hearing. There were times when... Um, they were doing, making gravel in the community nearby and, you know, throwing the big rocks in something. And it, it, I mean, this would be done from about 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night. And it was terribly noisy, you know. So it was like just having to put up with all of that and the food and the heat and, I mean, wearing robes that were polyester in that heat is when you're having hot flashes. I mean, what, <laughs> what was I thinking, you know? So, so, so there's all of that, you know, the opposition and, and overcoming it, finding ways to have compassion for the rock-busting family that needed to earn that money from 6 to 9 o'clock in order to keep their family going. I was told by the Burmese that I complained to in the hall. Oh, that's the family that needs to earn money. So by overcoming it by compassion, by patience, and all those qualities that um, I always love it when I see the application form and they say they've been to Burma, you know, then I know that there's a lot of opposition and overcoming has been practiced already. But the big one for me was because of that time period in my life and, and going through that menopausal stage too, hot flashes and um, just feeling tired, not a lot of energy, being 54. I mean, now I'm 65 and I feel more energetic, but then it was really bad and I kept thinking, I'm too old for this. Um, I'm, I'm 64 in a few, 65 in a few months. Not, not. <laughs> so I want to be truthful. Um, And I would say, I'm tired. I'm too old. You know, the body can't do this anymore. And I know there were specific times when I'd feel that. It was when walking from the meditation hall to the hall to eat. And, you know, it would be, that would be at lunchtime a lot. It would be in the hot sun. And um, it's only 11 o'clock, but it was already hot. And then I would have the thoughts, it's too hot, 
the body's too tired. I can't do this. I'm too old. This is beyond me now, you know. And then catching that, being mindful of that, and just, okay, just thinking, just thinking. And then I realized, you know, after even two minutes, I would be lost in that rabbit hole of confusion and delusion. And then I'd think that, I'd look at that and say, now check this out, Kama, really check your body. You're really not feeling tired in the body. It's just a thought. And I would check out the mind, and after noticing that thought go by, I would check out the mind and say, there's no tiredness in the mind. It's, it's really not overwhelmed right now. Just really checking those places out and seeing it's not happening, just even a moment afterwards. And it would be so freeing. And it would, uh, the faith in the ability to see that and to go on would be so, so freeing. Just being careful about believing what thoughts go by. Um, that's where we usually get lost in delusion, is really believing the thoughts. So after noticing the process of what was going on and noting or noticing it, sometimes there was no need to make a mental note as a word, it was just the recognition that that was happening. And that how sometimes it would bring doubt up in the mind. You know, the doubt, those... uh, phrases that that those words would be fed by doubt. So just recognizing that what was fueling it sometimes, it would come from that place. Just knowing doubt. Sometimes it wouldn't disappear so easily, but just doing the practice in the best way I could. I remember reporting such things to, uh, in before that, in practice before that, reporting such doubt to Manindraji, my first Dhamma teacher, and, and also to um, Seydal Upandita. And oftentimes they would say, Mara, Mara, this is Mara. This is the tempter or the temptress tempting you to get off of your seat and say, I quit. They wouldn't say it in that language, but in one way or another. It would be the, the tempting to get off of our path and say, I'm done, I quit, I can't do this anymore, or I'm not good enough, or some such words that we would tend to believe. I think you often hear from many teachers and, and your own friends, and you hear the words in your own mind when Mara comes up, or that doubting mind, I see you, Mara to just be able to catch it right there. I see you, Mara. So just as these defilements or these hindrances are taking advantage when there's some opening where there was a gap in the continuity of mindfulness where doubt can come up, other uh, defilements of aversion and clinging to how we think it should be different um, manifestations of delusion, uh, not seeing clearly, or being confused, or 
not being able to make up our minds of what is the right path now for us. We start thinking about other ways that it, was, it could be easier. In, in my very first long retreat, which was in Australia, in the Blue Mountains, I, um, I remember there was the, it was a place where the, the elderly nuns went to retire. And at a certain time of the day, they would go and say the rosary. And I would go to, um, at that time of the day, I would be going to my room, um, which was right past the room where I heard them say the rosary. And then right after, I'd go to my room and do some things, and then I'd go to the hall. It would be the time for sitting. And I come from a Catholic background, so I'd hear them saying, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And I would think, oh, I think I'm going in that room. That's much easier than this path, you know. And I, you know, take the time to ponder on that, short times of reflecting. Maybe there's something easier than this that I could do. Of course, you know, all of that practice helped me in this path, too. The concentration and the stay-with-itness and, and all of that. So I, I, I felt devoted to that path and appreciate that when I was there. I realized how important continuity of practice is because that's when the, the defilements just find their way in, when there's a gap in the continuity of our practice. When we, when we just fall into those rabbit holes and we allow ourselves to... I know sometimes we do have to think wisely, what should we do now? And we take those steps and that is great to do. But sometimes when we end up going to old stories or believing the thoughts or going to the planning mind of what else we could do instead of this uh, imagination then we lose the continuity of awareness. And that, that leaves for those gaps. Now, this is not anything which I usually say to any of you or those that you know, I'm given the opportunity to offer advice to. But Upandita would say to us very clearly, no gaps, when we would leave the room. Not every time. But I, I know some of you remember that. No gaps. And it was really very helpful for him to put our feet to the fire. And uh, I appreciated that kind of compassion that says, what about this life you could be free in? This very life. You don't have to wait. So um, <laughs> I don't have the courage to say that. <laughs> to anybody except to Steve, maybe <laughs> my husband. <laughs> Every experience is valuable that gives us that kind of courage to just keep going. And, and just, even if the mindfulness has to be general and we can't go to that difficult place, we can be mindful of this step the feeling of the step on the ground. We could be mindful of the whole body moving through space. could be mindful of hearing. We could be mindful of seeing. Just very simple things that would close the gaps, that kind of open the way for the defilements to come through the, the road. 
I, I got a very funny story from Utejaniya um, that I'd like to tell you. You know, he was teaching at, at the retreat center, and a few of you just come from there. And um, some of you may know that he was a shopkeeper before he became a monk, a business person. And so he's, he's just very aware of things that happen in business. And he, he uses wonderful stories to uh, make a point, make a Dhamma point. So he said about the defilements, he says that in our practice, we should be like a toll gate on the highway. So we're collecting from each of the defilements that pass through a toll. You know, that the experience we get from dealing f- with that defilement, whether they come through as donkeys or SUVs, you know, they can be very small, insignificant, but we should collect the value we get from the experience with them and not uh, diminish any value that we get. It's, everything is so important. And I might add, instead of allowing you know, the defilements to collect from us, to take our strength, to take our, our sense of, okay, we'll just take this next step and stay on the path, away from us. We should collect the value out of that experience. So now I want to go back to the establishment of trust in our teachers and then in the teachings. So just to make this very simple, I I want to be in the place of a yogi as as I talk about this. In Buddhist countries, traditionally, Having faith in the teachers and the teachings means to have faith in the reality of the possibility of full liberation as we accept that this is what was the case with the Buddha. And so we have faith in the Buddha. We have faith in the Dhamma and the teachings. We have faith in the complete uprooting of all the defilements and the development of wisdom in the Buddha. And having faith in the teachings that were offered to show the way, the causes and conditions for that full awakening, that full liberation. So most of us, if not all, have an intuitive sense that that's possible or we wouldn't be here. Like the Buddha, it's possible to be fully liberated. Or in stages to feel the weakening and eventually the total uprooting of those um, deeply rooted habit patterns that cause pain to ourselves and others, greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance, and all its various ways it manifests in our lives. We have um, been in touch with, to different degrees at different times, an inner calling recognize that deep inner calling, which there's a word for that. 
it's um, called samvega, spiritual urgency, to be free. In some ways, we feel that urgency to be totally free of all the ways that bring mental and emotional pain to ourselves and others. All that unwholesome reactivity that comes just adventitiously. Now we, we don't even, we can't even see it coming. It comes and takes over. It's that spiritual urgency to recognize that we can awaken to the truth of how it is and be in constant alignment with that truth in the way we live our lives, through our speech, through our behavior, through the way we think. Truly accepting that deep inner calling to awakening. So we may already have recognized that deep calling in ourselves, that faith that we have in that, because we're here. Many of you have so many years of practice that you've you could look back and see the deep underpinning was faith. It was always there. Or we may be very clear that it is our resolve to realize what is beyond this conditioned existence. We may be very clear about realizing the unconditioned not with a sense of grasping, but with a sense of just keeping on along the path until that happens. So, in a way, these are all the same. (laughs) They mean the same thing, just we have different ways of saying it, and I'm sure that you have your own ways of saying it. So we have faith in in our root teacher, so to say, uh, the Buddha, because we, we know somehow intuitively that that has been awakened in this human being of the Buddha, that that has been realized, the letting go or the awakening too. So my first teacher, Manindraji, who I had a lot of faith in, I have an, another story about that, but I've told it so often that I'm tired of that story, so I want to tell you another story. And this is a story that he told me. It's about Deepama, that probably all of you know about Deepama through the teachings, through the book about her, um, Knee Deep in Grace. That was the first title of the book. Manindraji often spoke of Deepama, one of his students. She was a relative of his, in fact, She was a housewife and a mother, just like me. So I had a deep affinity to to her and, and the stories about her. She had tremendous suffering in her life. And and the suffering that I could talk about couldn't hold hold a candle to what I heard about her life. She had tremendous faith in the Dhamma. She had tremendous faith in the Buddha and in in those who represented the Buddha's teachings, the teachers around her, like Manindraji. She had faith in herself as well. Such incredible faith. So many stories about her, of how 
that sometimes um, she crawled to the Dhamma Hall because she was just um, not well or somewhat weak. She would crawl to the Dhamma Hall up the steps to do her practice. So she had to have a kind of faith in herself that matched that suffering, that was um, able to meet that suffering. She was quite astonishing in her meditative capabilities. I heard stories about her that um, weren't in the book that Manindra experienced by being with her. So I know stories wake you up a little bit more, so I'm going to tell you one story. Manindraji said that um, she developed this ability to, to hear things that were going on somewhere else, you know, if she just put her mind to it. And she could even kind of disintegrate her body and reintegrate her body in another place. So she was taking these courses at the college or university nearby in courses like Pali and um, Abhidhamma and courses like that. And so, but she was a housewife and she had to cook and clean and do things like that. So she thought that this was at home and she thought that, well, the way I could do it instead of going to the bus stop and waiting and taking the bus there, (laughs) the way I could do it is to do this kind of um, open the audio, the hearing ear to that place afar and then just be in the classroom and hear what the teacher is saying at that time. And she, was, she would tell Manindra this. And then another thing she would do was disintegrate the body and then just reintegrate the body over there. You know, just kind of not take the bus. But, <laughs> but be right there. So then when she told Manindra this, Manindra said, oh, don't do that anymore, don't do that, because you will, you will weaken your, your ability in the uh, Vipassana area, because it takes so much energy to do that in the area of samatha, in the area of concentration. So you, you shouldn't waste your, your time and your energy this way. And more important even not to take the class, just to practice at home, you know. So stories like that I would hear. I, I was really never interested in that, in that kind of stuff anyway. But she was quite astonishing, quite an astonishing woman. You know, and she was taught by Manindra to, to do all these things. So those were the, the early stories of her, her practice and how she attained levels of enlightenment, you know, the letting go of greed, hatred, and, and delusion in, um, in different stages. And so those days were really wonderful when I, way back in the 70s when um, we would hear stories of just outright stories of enlightenment of people, you know, that were just in the village nearby and people like uh, Deepama. And so I, I was so inspired by all of this. And what I came to, and what was important to me, even at that time, was the purification, not the attainment of any stage, but more the purification of the heart. So the stories were told in such a way that I thought, 
if she can do it, I can do it too. You know, it was like, it's difficult, but I'm not going to stop myself just because, you know, like Deepama said, even women can do. She was, (laughs) you know. So she was an important inspiration to me in faith, in, in our teachers. Very important. Never met her. She was um, meant to actually come and stay at my house for a while um, to recover from uh, some, something she was going through. But she died just before that, so it was not my karma to meet her in that way. So that's about faith in oneself, faith in the teachers, and now faith in the teachings. So here I, I just want to say that uh, before I, I go on completely, I want to connect this faith in the teachings to faith in faith in the teachers, connected to faith in the teachings. I want to say that whenever it feels that you're, the light of faith in your own heart is pretty dim in regards to the teacher, then you really have to fall back on faith in the teachings. Faith in the teachings that you have understood that you have seen to be true for yourself. That if you uh, followed this way of doing the practice uh, or understanding your practice in this way, that you could keep going. That it would bring you a sense of balance and and a, a sense of trust and courage in yourself, for yourself. So Manindra would also say to me, um, Look to the teaching, not to the teacher. I would hear him say that. He, he, wouldn't, he was a kind of person that he wouldn't want you to depend on him so much. You know, he would want you to really to depend on your own inner resources. And even our, our seidals are that way. I always took the way they held their fans up to themselves. You know, like, don't put that on me, you See for yourself. Um, come and see for yourself. That's what the saying is. Ehi pasiko. That's where you find the, the clearest alignment in your alignment with what you know of the teachings, how you have interpreted it to make use of, and, um, and your own heart. That kind of alignment. So one time, 30 years ago, I went to Manindraji. Um, He was actually staying at our house, and I went to him expressing my doubts about a certain prominent teacher of that time. Um, He was teaching a variety of things, which included Vipassana. And so the teachings coming from that teacher were always quite clear to me, and I, I, I really did always appreciate them. And when I met up with people who came from from that um, teacher, from those teachings, I did always kind of admire the way they looked at life and the way they they practiced in 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 their own ways. You know, not not exactly the way that we take in the teachings of the Buddha, but their own way of looking, investigating life in in their own hearts and minds. And there were also ways that I saw that this teacher was not appropriate and actually um, was going against the precepts, the major, you know, five precepts. 
And I thought, oh, how can I read all of this, these beautiful words in this direction when I don't trust the teacher? Because there was, you know, some uh, gossip around at that time. And, um, of course, you know, you're, you're asked not to believe everything you hear, but it was getting pretty bad. And in the end, you know, it, it, it was pretty bad. So when I went to Manindra telling him of this story and, and wondering what to do, he said, you know, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. Sometimes you can hear things. I mean, you know, like we say, out of the mouth of babes. You can hear things from your mom. I mean, my kids would never say that. But you can hear things from your mom that are really important 30 years later or maybe, you know, 10 minutes later. But, or you can hear things from your grandmother or your elders or uh, from people that maybe you don't have much total respect in. And, um, well, you can see the way they are in their life in other ways, you know, that they're careful. So we have to use our own spiritual sensitivity. That's, that's what's important with faith. So in terms of faith in the teachings, one of the most basic places to look at this in our own relationship to it is um, in our relationship to the Four Noble Truths. And that, that is a, a, a teaching in and of itself. So I'm just, in brief, uh, going to go through it in relationship to faith. It's said that one of the proximate causes for faith to arise in our hearts is seeing suffering. Seeing suffering. And so when we look at the first noble truth, the, the uh, expression in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in, uh, the, those words are dukkha satcha. Dukkha means suffering. Satcha means the truth. And so what those two words actually mean, I'm told by people I trust uh, in, in these translations, is there is the truth of suffering. Not as it has been wrongly uh, translated and, um, you know, what a way to invite people to the Dharma, the first noble truth, wrongly translated as life is suffering. It really means there is the truth of suffering. And usually this seeing of this is what brings us to the practice if you ask a hundred people what brought you to the practice, more than 90% of them probably would say it was suffering, wanted to find more deeply a way to the end of this. So it's said that suffering should be investigated, and that's what we do in our practice. By bringing attention to the moment's experience, we come to see deeply what is the cause of suffering, which is the second noble truth. We come to see deeply the third noble truth, that there is an end to suffering. And we see that the, the end to suffering is the relinquishing of clinging, of attachment, which is the cause. 
And there is a way to the end of suffering, a path to the end of suffering, which is the fourth noble truth, and this is the Eightfold Noble Path. And all of us have been investigating that over the years of our practice, how, it, how we see that we can trust the ways that we develop sila, or living in harmony with ourselves and one another, that we can really trust uh, seeing that when our speech, our actions in life and our livelihood is aligned with the deepest ways of harmony, that we have more peace in our lives. We see that when we develop the second area of the path, there's sila, living in harmony, samadhi, that is through the practice of concentration and mindfulness, that when we uh, come close to really paying attention to these areas and seeing that through concentration the, we can temporarily not feel, the, not be at the mercy of the defilements. With our mindfulness practice, we begin to uproot them uh, more and more, and we feel that deep calm and clarity samadhi in our minds, in our hearts. And through this, these as a basis, we learn that the path of panya, or the development of wisdom, is more easily known, more easily unfolds, more easily develops. Panya, wisdom, seeing things as they are and living in alignment with that. So we may realize just how much faith we already have in the teachings. Because we've walked this path and we've seen in our own ways how it leads to very deep harmony and peace. And there can be even deeper harmony and peace in our hearts. So through this faith in the teachings, in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, our faith deepens in all other ways. So let's sit for a moment and let the the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.